choir. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We are going to see the King. Before approaching our scripture, I just want to just want to share with you that the the canon of the gospel in the Bible that we adore was closed in the 5th century AD. And while that meant that there were no more books that would be included in the Bible, it did not mean that God was finished writing his redemption story throughout history. And today in this between time, between the time when Jesus came the first time and the time in which he will return, we are the people that God is using to reach the world and write his story. When I was first coming to Christ, when I made my profession of faith at the age of 35, there was a lot of the world in me. And I was mentored by godly men who established for me a vision and a pathway of what it meant to be a faithful disciple. And in our scripture today, we will meet just such a man. So as is our custom here at Parkway, would you please rise for the hearing and the reading of God's word? Our passage today comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. It's immediate follow-on to what Brother Darrell preached about last week. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, writes in verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Ladies and gentlemen, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father God, Father, we thank you that your word lives, that it's inbreathed with the Holy Spirit, and I ask now that your spirit enter into our hearts and our ears. Father, that your spirit speak through me the words that you would have your people hear. Father, that we might not be just informed, Father, but transformed by the power of your word. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Um, the book of Acts introduces us to a guy called Barnabas. Now, that's not his real name. Who would do that to a child, right? His real name is Joseph, a name that I must confess I'm rather attached to myself. And we're told that he's a Levite. He's from the priestly tribe. 
and from the Isle of Cyprus, which means that he is socially Greek. So he's kind of a hybrid. He probably grew up in a household where he had two languages. He had the Greek of his culture, and he had the Hebrew that he was being raised up in. But the thing that struck me, and this has struck me from the day, the very first Bible study I took after confessing Christ, Brother Roger was teaching a class on the book of Acts. And I ran into this cat called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I want you to stop and let that one bounce around your head a little bit. Son of encouragement. I've been around the church for several, almost three decades now since that day. And I have met a few sons of encouragement, a few daughters of encouragement, a couple of children of encouragement, so that I may be inclusive. But I've also met more than my fair share of children of discouragement. Anybody other than me ever meet what I call them sourpuss Christians? Right? And... Luke tells us, by way of introduction, that what this Barnabas did was over and above and beyond. What's required by the law is with regard to an act of generosity. He sold an entire field, and he took the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. I'm not going to park on that even though it's stewardship season. What I want to dig into is I want to dig into what kind of person would do that. What would, what, would, what would have to happen inside that person to make them want to do that? You see, there is no indication in the text that the church called out and said, hey, we need money. Which makes this even more astonishing because in, in 1 Corinthians we see there is need in the church. And we see they do issue an appeal to the other churches in the outlying lands to support the church in Jerusalem. And we see the outflowing of generosity that comes from that. But in this particular case, this is an early church. There's nobody saying we need money. Here's somebody coming up and saying, out of the goodness of what God has done for me, here is a gift that I would like to make. And he lays it at the apostles' feet. He gives it joyfully. There was no compulsion. He gives it humbly. There were no conditions. And you get the impression, and as we dig into his background, you'll find out that this guy was somebody socially, okay? But there's no pretension. There's no, there's no strings attached. There's nothing 
He acknowledges the authority of the apostles by laying the gift at the apostles' feet. He says, you are more important than I am. The mission is more important than Now, we learn a lot about Barnabas, if you track him, and Luke is very, very, very impressed with this guy, obviously. There's an entire string of accolades. Luke calls him a good man in Acts chapter 11, a prophet and a teacher in Acts chapter 13, an apostle. We'll come back to that in chapter 14. And one through God worked miracles in chapter 15. This guy was on fire for the mission of God. He also faced persecution in chapters 13, 14, and was nearly put to death in chapter 15. He didn't have it all cushy like we do. In 1 Corinthians, Paul even confirms that as an apostle, Barnabas and he had worked so that they wouldn't be a burden on the churches they served. Now, I don't really know who this is, but anybody that can earn the nickname the son of encouragement from the apostles who had traveled with Jesus, I want to find out a little bit more about him so I can learn, hopefully and humbly, to emulate him response because generosity is a response it's a response grown out of gratitude and I can see that on the day that Barnabas went to be with his ancestors I love that phrase he was greeted in the kingdom of heaven with well done good and faithful servant And I'm so far from how, you know, how did you get here? I want to get to good, well done, good and faithful servant. I think I might be able to learn a thing or two from old Barnabas. Perhaps you can too. According to early church tradition, including the early church father, Clement of Alexandria, I apologize, though born on Cyprus, he was a Levite. And so he was sent off to school in Jerusalem to study under a guy we will also encounter in the book of Acts called Gamaliel. While he was there, there's a pretty good chance, according to biblical scholars, that one of his classmates was a guy by the name of Saul. And that when Jesus came (coughs) into his time of ministry, Joseph, later Barnabas, heard Jesus, responded to Jesus, and was in fact a follower of Jesus through his mission and his ministry. And the early church tradition is that he is one of the 72 that Jesus appointed and sent out in Luke chapter 10 to announce to the villages and the towns that Jesus was approaching. There's also a story that carried a great deal of weight in the early church that Jesus made the attempt to persuade Saul to follow Jesus. 
and that Saul rejected it, hardened his heart, and later went on to persecute the church. It seems that one of Barnabas's, <coughs> pardon me, first converts was a lady by the name of Mary. Mary had a son named John that people called Mark. John Mark. Author of the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus converted Mary, and through Mary, Mark was led to the faith. And in the aftermath of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, we meet Barnabas for the first time in the early church, and he brings his gift to the elders. And at that point, we see things start to go bad for the church about chapter 8, right? The church is under persecution. Saul actually gets the authority from the elders and the chief priests to go to Damascus, to arrest the believers there, to bring them back in chains so that they could be put on trial and most likely stoned to death like Stephen. And we all know the story of Saul's great conversion on the road to Damascus where he encounters the living Jesus. He is blinded for three days. He goes into Damascus and is transformed. One of the disciples in the city of Damascus hears a vision from God say, go to Saul. Who wants that job? Right? This guy's killing and persecuting Christians. You want me to go see him? <coughs> but he does. And Saul, the scales fall from his eyes and he begins preaching so powerfully in the city of Damascus that Jesus is risen that the Jews of the city try to kill him. And so to escape him, they lower him from a basket by the city wall in the middle of the night. And he reaches out <coughs> to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And they're afraid of him. They don't trust him. This is the same Saul that put Stephen to death. This is the same Saul that dispersed our churches. This is the same Saul that took his crusade to Damascus. And so we will not meet with him. And Joseph, called Barnabas, at great personal and risk to his reputation and risk to his very life goes out and meets Saul in the desert. And he hears his story. And he's convinced. And he is convicted and he goes back to the church in Jerusalem and he establishes a reconciliation between Saul and the, the apostles one of the deacons of whom he had killed just so recently. And Saul starts to preach in Jerusalem. This seems to be an ongoing thing in Saul's life. He is such a good preacher that the Jews try to kill him in Jerusalem. 
And so the leaders of the church sent him to exile in Tarsus. And ladies and gentlemen, that would have been the end of the story. The 14 letters of Paul would not appear in the New Testament if he had remained in exile in Tarsus. But shortly after this, a miracle was occurring up in a place called Antioch in Syria. Some of the dispersed believers in Jesus Christ had established new homes. And they were telling the story of Jesus. And some of the people that were hearing the story of Jesus were Greek. And they needed somebody fluent in Greek to go up there and find out what's going on, so they send Joseph. Not as a spy, as an ambassador, as an investigator. And Joseph is so blown away by what God is doing in the city of Antioch, he reports with joy to the church in Jerusalem that God is doing a very big thing among the Gentiles. And that the church needs to get behind this (coughs) and to support it and to equip it. And so the church empowers Barnabas to lead and mentor that church. And in very short time, Barnabas recognizes that that task is beyond the capability of a single person. And so Barnabas goes down to Tarsus. And he seeks out Saul. And he gives him a commission. He says, come with me and help build nourish, nurture, and equip this church of new believers because I believe you're the person for this. Can you see any of the other leaders of the early church having enough faith in a guy with a reputation like Saul's to have put him in that position? I can't. But Barnabas goes and says, come on, man, you're the man for the job. And for several years, they are joined together in a mentoring relationship. And the church flourishes to the point where in chapter 11, when the prophet Agabus says, hey, Jerusalem's going to get a famine soon. And the people of the church in Antioch said, well, we can't let that happen. Let's take up an offering in anticipation of the need of the church. And we will send Barnabas and Saul with it to lay it at the feet of the elders. And so they go back down. And then Saul and Barnabas go on a missionary journey together. The elders of the church at Antioch fasted and prayed, and they said, hey, what do you want us to do with these gifted teachers that you have? And God said to that church, send them out, and they did. And so Paul, accompanied by Barnabas on his first missionary journey, starts to expand the footprint of the church.
at great personal risk. This is where we start imprisonings, beatings, stonings, and performing incredible miracles. But even through chapter 13 in the book of Acts, you'll notice that Barnabas is always in the first place. And Saul and the other companions follow in behind him. Barnabas is clearly the leader in that relationship. But you get to chapter 14 and that situation changes a little bit. Paul and Barnabas. It's your homework tonight. You can check me on this, okay? Paul and Barnabas. You can almost see Barnabas saying, okay, you're ready. My mentoring is done. I must become lesser so that you may become greater. We've heard those words before, right, from John the Baptist? And so Saul, so Barnabas is the kind of person that he doesn't need it. Now, this is fascinating to me. The Bible isn't much on physical descriptions. There's only a couple of people throughout the entire Bible that we get any idea what they look like. We got Zacchaeus, we know he was a runt, right? We got Saul the king, we know he was a full head taller than anybody else. We get little David, ruddy complexion, and so small that he can't wear the king's armor. But we don't get much. Occasionally there's a woman or two throughout the entire canon that is described as beautiful. Occasionally there's a couple people that are described as good, but we don't get much. When John, or excuse me, when Paul and Barnabas are on the road to Lystra on the first missionary trip, they perform a miracle. They heal a man who was lame in the name and the power of Jesus Christ, and that man walks. And the Greeks of the city saw that. And they were astonished, and of course they're Greeks. They don't have one God, Jehovah God, they have a pantheon of gods, right? And so they describe Barnabas as Zeus. And Paul as Hermes. And those of you that are up to date on your Greek mythology will know that Zeus was the ruler over all of Mount Olympus. He was the king of the gods of Greece, and that Hermes was his messenger. And if you go and you look at the ancient statues of Zeus, what you will see is a large, powerfully built, muscular, regal, middle-aged man. And so it's quite possible that this Barnabas chap was an imposing character that made the Greeks automatically assume that he was the big guy, the power guy, right? I'm just saying. And yet you get all of those attributes, physical attractiveness, power, intelligence, and here he is willing to step down and elevate and promote the young Paul into a place, to prepare him and catapult him into a place because Barnabas doesn't care about what's his. He cares about kingdom things. 
You remember that uh, Barnabas had a cousin by the name of John Mark? Well, apparently on the first missionary trip, Mark decided to leave Paul and Barnabas. Decided he couldn't go through everything that they were going through, and so he went back home to to, uh, Jerusalem. And when Paul decides after the council of Jerusalem, where Barnabas plays a very, very, very critical role in allowing for the explosive expansion of the church to the Gentiles. Y'all may remember the argument, before they become Christian, do they have to become Jewish? Seems logical, right? All the first Christians were Jewish? Everybody follow that logic so far? There's one small problem to becoming Jewish, especially if you're a adult male. The whole circumcision thing becomes a little barrier to entry, if you will, right? <clears throat> and so Paul and Barnabas were critical in saying that you didn't have to pass through that to become a Christian. And so our, our foundational saved by Grace alone, through faith alone, through profession in Jesus Christ became the establishment of membership in the church. After that, Paul says, hey, let's go back and let's, let's serve those churches that we established. And he and Barnabas say, hey, let's do it. Barnabas says, I'd like to take along John Mark. I think he's got potential. We can grow this young man into something that will be really powerful for the kingdom. And Paul says, nope, he's a quitter. He quit on us the last time, and I'm not going to take him. And Paul and Barnabas, and this is one of the things I love about the Bible, it does not cover up conflict. Paul and Barnabas broke over this. They went their separate ways. Paul takes Silas and goes on a second missionary trip, and Barnabas goes, finds John Mark, lifts him up, and begins to teach and equip and mentor him. John Mark will become so powerful that Peter will entrust the writing of his gospel. We call it the Gospel of Mark to him. And Paul himself, in his letter to second, second letter to Timothy, is reconciled to a renewed John Mark because he says, bless Mark because he has been very helpful to me. see, Barnabas didn't see people as they were. He saw them for what they could become. In many ways, Jesus is the same. Who would save a wretch like me?
Who would pay that kind of price for this unworthy a person? And Barnabas had the ability to see not the who it is, but who they will be. And he was willing to act on it despite whatever criticism, persecution, bad press he got. Because all Barnabas cared about was building people to build the kingdom. He poured encouragement into others instead of pouring discouragement on people to make me feel better about how I stand in the eyes of the kingdom of God. We've all known them, right? By the way, there's a, there's a pretty good chance our buddy Barnabas is on the short list of potential authors of the book of Hebrews. Bet y'all didn't know that. They probably all do. I didn't know that. Matter of fact, the early church father Tertullian specifically cited him as the author. And because of the nature of the Greek that is used, the similarity of the gospel message that is told with that told by Paul, And the fact that he says in the, in, the, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, this comes to us, meaning the apostles, the disciples. Many, 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 especially in the early church, before we got all the skeptics, all the Dougie Downers in biblical scholarship, think that Barnabas may have been the guy. Whether or not he actually wrote Hebrews, Barnabas clearly had an impact that was immense on a growing, vibrant, early church. And people, God is not done growing His church. And God is looking for people who are willing to be children of encouragement. Children that will equip and train and mentor and encourage and build up the people who will build the future of this church. There can be little doubt that the character traits of a person like a Barnabas, his goodness, his faith, his kindness, his courage, his generosity, humility, self-sacrifice, open-mindedness, boldness, and the fact that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Little doubt that he could impact others in a very, very powerful and positive way. And I believe that as followers of Christ, he is a man worthy of emulation. As we approach this season, where we recommit, not just our money, but ourselves, to the service of God's kingdom, it is my prayer for you, and it is my prayer for me. 
that we will live in such a way that the people whose lives we enter into will look back on us and call us son and daughter, children of encouragement. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, you have given us such brilliant examples of who you would have us to be, Father, first and foremost, in the revelation and life of your Son, Jesus Christ, but Father, also those of us who know that we cannot be perfect in faithful, effective, thoroughly, thoroughly sold out encouragers like Barnabas. Father, I pray that you transform us into the people that will impact your kingdom. In Jesus' holy and precious name.